extremely lucky to have had uh, the ability to think about probably three different things for a year or more. One of them was closure. Uh, and uh, there's nothing I prize more than that kind of time. The other thing I'd ask is when was the last time that you felt confident uh, trying to do something you had never done before? And what do you think it takes to become confident in doing something you've never done before. Right? Obviously, as software developers, a lot of times you know, we're doing the umpteenth application that takes something out of a database and puts it on the web. Um, but the luckier you are, luckier you are, the more likely you are to encounter problems you've never done before. And uh, how do you end up, you know, how do you start doing that and, uh, and not feel uh, incredibly at risk? Uh, so we'll start about some by talking about some software development, you know, things we all know to be true, right? We hate bugs in our programs, we're trying to write quality programs, and we know if we let the programs reach the field, uh, it's incredibly expensive to, you know, fix inadequacies and inadequacies in the program, right? So we say, okay, we'll have a big testing process and quality assurance, and even that, we know, is not so great because it sort of has this removal, you know, this distance from the development effort, uh, which is not good. Uh, so now we know we know what to do in this area, right? We fix bugs while we're coding uh, by testing and development, and this is the best way to avoid bugs in our applications, right? No. In answer, Ken, did you notice? that I learned how to make each bullet happen one at a time. <laughs> so now, you don't know what I'm gonna say. <laughs> it's awesome. It's like this menu item for No, definitely, absolutely, positively not. Uh, the least expensive place to fix bugs 
is when you're designing your software, which everybody does, yes? Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. I will contend, uh, of all the things I'm saying here, which, which are very, very extremely fuzzy, um, that without a doubt, most of the big problems we have with software are problems of misconception. We don't have a good idea of what we're doing before we do it, and then go, 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 go. And we do everything, you know, we have practices and all kinds of stuff, and we feel really good about ourselves after that point. Um, but if you mess it up, you know, as Mark said, in step one, it is not going to turn out well. They're not problems of implementation. There are problems of implementation, obviously, and testing and other things help with those. Uh, but problems of misconception are not generally addressed by testing or type systems or the things we use to correct defects in implementation. Right? There aren't really type systems that can tell us if... Uh, we've got a good idea, or what we're doing um, addresses that idea. So I'm going to talk a little bit about analysis and design. I know that's so 90s and ugly, and was rightfully uh, you know, criticized and really dropped. Because you know, people considered it to be about process, and drawing pictures, and you know, knowing everything about everything and making comprehensive plans and the waterfall model. And there was amazing amounts of stuff that was terrible about this. Um, but that it doesn't mean that the, the step before go do it is not an important step. And I think uh, we don't spend enough time and energy or, or make enough time or get allocated time. You know, it may not be a matter of our choice. We say, well, we'd like to spend some time thinking about it, but you know, we have to ship something next week. Uh, but we are definitely suffering in quality because we, we don't spend the time here. And so what I'd like to do is sort of just, whatever you think analysis and design is, I'd like you to just forget for the moment, and let's try to make a really simple definition. Analysis and design is about two things. Identifying some problem that we're trying to solve, and assessing our proposed solution in terms of whether or not it solves that problem. That's really what it's about, not about anything else. Right? We should be solving problems. Right? We should not be building features. There's nothing about feature. What is feature? Feature is just an attribute of something. It's the shiny you know, chrome knob on something. It's not the purpose of the car. Uh, there's no guarantee if you put together a feature list, even if it comes from the customer, um, that it's going to solve their own problem, or that it solves any problem, or that the features when you put them together don't introduce a whole ton of other problems. Right? So programming and writing software is not about completing lists of features. Uh, in particular, features provided by users, in spite of their best efforts to satisfy themselves, um, are often really not good ideas. And uh, you've got to dig underneath it and figure out what problem they have and what's the best solution to it, and then reconcile it with whatever they asked for. Um, we also have a tendency, because we're, we're all smart and we love being smart and sort of figuring out how to make things go, that you know, figuring out how to make something go is good no matter what it took to do it. Right? So if we can find a way to get around a problem, we're like, woo, that's great. Um, and it's not great, right? Avoiding problems, which we're all capable of doing, uh, very capable of doing, isn't the same as solving them. So we should really try to work on solving problems. 
And the thing I'm going to talk about today is really that uh, there, there's a bunch of technique and, and uh, skill to solving problems. Uh, and the first one is just to make an effort to understand the problem you're working on, to recognize, identify it, put it somewhere, um, and talk about it. So problem solving is definitely a skill. I think you know you shouldn't take away from this talk that you know there's a certain kind of person who's like good at problem solving and they get to do this part of the job, and then we we can practice these other things. You can practice this part. Uh, Palio wrote this amazing book called How to Solve It in I don't know, 1945 or something, which is about how to practice how to practice and what are the techniques of solving math problems in this case. And uh, it's a terrific book full of great insight. And if you've never read it, go onto Amazon right after my talk and order yourself a copy. Uh, one of the things that's not so great about the book is that it is in the math space. right? And in, in that space, um, there's this really nice thing that happens. When you're done and you think you have an answer, you have all the techniques of mathematical proof to determine if you actually have. Whereas as software developers, we don't have that. Right? There's no way to prove that you have a good solution to somebody's e-commerce site problem. Right? There's no mathematical techniques and there's not going to be any anytime soon that will let us do that. Uh, but it is a skill and it is something you can practice, it's something you can learn about. Uh, and, uh, and it's worth doing, right? Because as human beings, we get good at what we practice. It doesn't matter what it is. There's amazing examples of people practicing things that they seem to have no uh, potential uh, hope to become good at it, and they get good at it because they practiced it. Um, if you practice problem solving, really practice problem solving, you will get good at it. Um, if you practice methodology X, you will get good at that. Um, and I'd like you to ask yourself, where do you think there's more leverage? I don't care what X is. Pick any X you want. Would you rather be good at it or the general skill of solving problems. So what do we need to do? If we're going to work on solving problems, what, what, is, what is the activity like? Uh, the first thing is to actually say, I am solving this problem. This problem is this. Blah, 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 blah. And therefore, blah. So I have seen so much software made where no one ever said that. No one ever wrote that down. And then boom, we have a whole system. And no one said what problem it's supposed to solve. If we're not solving problems, I have no idea why we're in this room. We absolutely should be working on solving problems, which means we should be, we should be uh, enumerating what they are. And then from the mental standpoint, which I'll talk about a little bit later, it is actually important to say them out loud. Right? As the person who's trying to solve a problem, say, say it. Have a conversation with somebody in your group and say, we need to solve this. The, pro the problem is blah, blah, blah. You know, rant or talk and you know, have a little conversation. Or write it down. But just like you use the, you know, the practice of repeating somebody's name when you're introduced to them as a mnemonic to help you uh, remember their name, it's the same thing. This is the seed of solving the problem, is stating it. So the next, the next part, which is definitely trickier, and Polly's book is great. It's got a lot of practical things. Many of these are overlap what he said, um, is to understand the problem. Right? So, so if we said, we have this problem. Um, I think we need a, a NoSQL database. Right? There's something missing. Right? <laughs> we have this problem. We need a NoSQL database. Uh, we haven't actually said you know, why 
So the, what are the characteristics of this problem that lead us to this solution space? And, and this is where all the interesting work is, I think, in software development. Right? And so the first step is, what do you know about what you're trying to do? Um, there's definitely going to be a bunch of facts. Um, there will be customer requirements. There'll be other things. There'll be context. You know, the system has to run in this kind of box, has to run for this long. It can't consume more, more than this many watts or has to support uh, 10 million users. Whatever it is, there are those kinds of things and constraints. Uh, all this stuff are facts you know about what you're supposed to do. Right? There will be things that right away you know you don't know. Right? I wonder where we're going to get, you know, the, the, the data as an input to this thing. Um, or what we're going to do when our main data source for it is, isn't available. Do we have a secondary thing? There will be things like that. Of course, there will be things that you don't know or you don't know. Well, that's fair. Uh, but if there's things you don't know, um, you should think about them now. The other thing to do is to say, you know, everybody says, uh, you know, oh, I'm doing X. I have this great idea for excellence. If you know, you're the only person in the world that ever had this problem to solve. Now, that's very, very unlikely. So go find some other solutions to similar problems. You know, are there any others that you know about? And what can you find out about them? Because looking at other solutions to the same problem is the number one way to get up to speed really quickly and start working ahead of you know, the best known solutions in this space. Uh, and then, because what you'll have to do then will just be an incremental step above what the last guy did. But if you're ignoring what the last guy did, you're starting from scratch. Uh, so you definitely want to look around in the space. All right. Now, I'm not advocating a methodology or anything, but if you're going to bother to do all this work, you should write it down. Somehow, some way. I don't care how. The other thing you have to do is you have to be discerning. You have to, you have to be critical. Um, and we're sort of in this world because there's all this community stuff, and it's like I just hear awesome. It's like awesome happens. I just hear it like 50 times a day. Um, not everything is awesome. <laughs> right? And so it's hard to talk about other people's stuff not being awesome. So just, I mean, mainly focus on your own stuff. In particular, as you're finding solutions, as you're trying to you know, enumerate a solution to a problem, um, look for defects in your own solution. And of course, you can have a whole talk about this because th there, will be, there will be technical errors, there will be errors in logic, there will also be errors of uh, taste and judgment and abstraction and all those kinds of things. It all feeds into this and there's an entire talk in this, this area. But whatever um, issues you can find in your own solutions, try to solve those too right away up front. Um, uh, if you, so the other thing you see is, um, oh, I, I, we're, we're going to do this. Oh, we can use an OSQL database. Oh, that's great. It has these, you know, ten attributes. It's awesome. Uh, uh, it's really easy to get excited about the good parts of what you do, uh, but you should be looking for trade-offs. The chances of there being no trade-offs in any solution are slim. The other thing is just this, again, this what, what don't you know thing. If, if there's stuff you know you don't know, there are questions you should be asking in order to find out what you don't know. You don't know everything. Right? So there should be question marks on the, whatever it is you want to use that you're going to write all this stuff down. There should be question marks on that page. If there are no question marks, you're missing the step. 
the other thing is, uh, you know, to think about, uh, you know, none of us are born knowing how to write software. Uh, none of us are born knowing about SQL or the characteristics of the web or protocols or anything else. Um, and if you're trying to solve a problem, especially in a space where you haven't done it before, um, you're going to have a very limited ability to come up with solutions if you don't have a lot of input. Right? You're going to need to get a lot of different inputs so that you can let your brain go around between them and say, oh, yeah, this idea and that idea are connected to each other and therefore I can do this other thing. If you only take a really narrow slice of, I see exactly what I'm doing right now, right this second to deliver next week, um, you're not going to have enough inputs to make decisions. So you want to read about the kind of space that you're in, widely, right? Very specifically, ooh, this other people try to do exactly the same thing, and then broadly, right, there are these other characteristic problems, and maybe even, if you want, go try to find research papers that are kind of in the same space. It's amazing the cool things you can find by searching something like ACM for papers about the kind of, it's like, oh, I wonder if we could get a certain kind of hash code that does whatever. You go into Google and type hash code that does whatever, enter, and if there's some scholarly and ACM references, grab those papers. Even if you only understand like a tiny fraction of the paper, it's likely to contribute to your ability to think about your problem. The other thing is, even if you're not gonna tell the other guy, when you're looking at other solutions, be extremely critical. I can't ex tell you how often you're gonna find the next best idea by completely crucifying the last guy's idea. <laughs> at least in your own head, right? Take it apart, right? Because when you take it apart, you're gonna find a couple of things maybe they didn't write down when they were doing it. So, everybody says, Designs about trade-offs. Everybody knows this, right? Um. right. Usually when they're talking about trade-offs in their software, they're talking about the parts of their software that suck. <laughs> right? I had to make these trade-offs. Uh, that is not what a trade-off is, right? You have to look at at least two solutions to your problem. At least two. And you have to figure out what's good and bad about those things. Right? Before you can say, I made a trade-off. Uh, so I really recommend that you do that. And when you do it, you might want to write that down somewhere. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more about practice. Uh, a big part of trying to do this work is maintaining your focus. Um, we had a really nice talk yesterday about flow, and that, that is a kind of a focus-related uh, concept. And when you're trying to do design work, you also need, I think, some of the most extreme focus um, you're going to ever need. And so there's some cool aspects to the hammock. One of the cool aspects to a hammock is that you can go in a hammock and you can close your eyes, and no one knows that you're not sleeping. But they won't bother you because they think you might be sleeping. <laughs> so it's, a, it's very cool. Uh, computers are bad, bad sources of distraction. They're so bad, especially for people like us. It's just like, <laughs> something else besides what I'm trying to think about. You desperately need to get away from the computer if you're trying to focus. There's, it's almost impossible to focus sitting at a computer. The other thing about focus is that you're going to be making trade-offs when you try to focus really intensely. You're going to drop balls. You're going to miss 
<coughs> calling people back and responding to emails and doing your slides for conferences until the airport on the way there, <laughs> and things like that. Um, that's just the game. The one thing, though, is that um, you should communicate to people that you care about about this process and the fact that when you're doing it, you're going to seem pretty far away. And that's not a comment about the person that you're, you, know, you care about. It's just the nature of doing this kind of work. Um, so it's, it is important to sort of do it. A lot of people will not get time to do this all day, every day, or over the course of an entire week. But if you're going to get some focus time, um, you know, define what that is. You know, like everybody knows about timeout time for little kids. You know, what programmers need this focus time. They're like little kids that need to go sit on the hammock and have nobody bother them. So for me, personally, I think that, uh, that the process involves um, two parts of your mind. And this is stuff that you're seeing. There's books written about this and whatever. And I haven't read them. But, uh, but they seem to correspond to my personal experience, which is that you sort of have this waking mind and, and background mind. Right? And your waking mind is really good at that criticizing part. Um, it's extremely analytical. Um, and it's very, very good at tactics. Right, right now, we need to make a decision. You know, the lion is chasing after us. Jump left. You know, we are really good at that. That's what our waking mind is about: um, keeping us alive and uh, and making short-term decisions uh, and looking at the immediately present uh, information and doing something about it. However, if you think you're going to sit down and look at a problem for the first time and stare at your computer and do whatever and have a conversation for 10 minutes and make a really great decision, I don't think so. I know I can't do that. Uh, definitely not. The problem with this kind of thing is it tends to push uphill. Ooh, I see this. Oh, I see that. Ooh, I see. Okay, here I have a choice left and right. Okay, I can go right. That's more up. Left and right. It's right. You know, left, that's more up. More up. It's this part of your thinking is really good at finding the local maximum. Um, but it's not very good at getting off the track it's on and finding the fact that there's another hill over there that really takes you higher. But this is a very, very critical activity that you have to engage in, I think, if you want to use your entire brain and become very good at problem solving. And that is to think about using your waking time to assign tasks to your background mind. Right? To actually think hard about something and create work for your background mind. Um, that really is the point of the hammock and all this listening and all this work I'm going to talk about that you're going to do when you're awake is actually to, to give the other half of you stuff to do. The other good thing about your waking mind is when you, when you do think you have a great idea that you come up with in your background mind, um, your waking mind is good at picking the other part saying, eh, you know, you thought you woke up with this brilliant idea, but now I'm seeing this, this characteristic of it that seems not so brilliant. So let's talk about the background mind. Uh, I'm not going to directly equate it with the sleeping mind, um, but the sleeping mind is the number one instance of background mind. Um, you can find access to your background mind during the day uh, while you're awake, but um, it's tricky. It's good at making connections, right? Kind of thing like if I leave my, if I make a hut out of mud and it rains hard, it will disintegrate. Um, 
is not necessarily the kind of thing that you can tactically figure out. Your, your background mind is going to know sort of aspects of all those different components and make the connections and synthesize them. Even when you think you're really hot at making decisions on the fly, you're almost always just regurgitating something your background mind has already figured out. Um, so the background mind is good at synthesizing things. It's, about, it's good about strategy. Right? And so uh, when Mark talks about you know, abstractions and things like that, abstractions are, are, are software strategy. Right? Because the idea there is you're making some super global decision that's going to need to be correct in a whole bunch of contexts in which you can't make tactical decisions yet. Right? What does it mean to make an abstraction you're going to derive libraries from? You know, what does it mean to put something in a programming language where I had no idea what you guys were going to do about it, you know, with it? It's a, it's a more strategic kind of thing. You don't build a programming language and say, how will this programming language deal with HTTP requests? You know, what you want to do is give Mark something that he can use um, when he's got a tactical decision to make about HTTP requests. And that's a strategic kind of thinking. And your background mind is good at strategic thinking. If you want to do abstraction, you have to find time to do this thinking because that's the part of your brain it comes from. Right? It does abstraction, it draws analogies. Right? I think this is where you solve most non-trivial problems. Okay? You can make good decisions in the moment uh, otherwise, but if you're really trying to solve something hard, you've got to engage the other half of your, of your head. So I'm not just saying, the Scientific American <laughs> said that when we're sleeping, we process the information during the day, because that's pretty obvious. Um, but that sleep reinforces memory, which is good. I mean, it is important to remem remember what you're working on. Uh, but more importantly, it is a great sorter out of things. Right? So we had this whole, I'm, I, I just advocated taking a lot of input, right? Taking a lot of input, doing all this analysis of the requirements in the space. Right? Doing you know, all the reading, looking at you know, competitive solutions and tearing them apart. That's like, there's this ton of stuff. When are you going to decide what about that is important and what isn't? When you're asleep. Okay? That's what happens. Evolution has solved this problem for us. Uh, and that's the solution it came up with. We can't ignore it. We have to use it. But the most critical thing is this one. Finding hidden relations and solving problems we were working on. Okay. So imagine somebody says, I have this problem, uh, this, that, 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 that. And you look at it for 10 minutes and say, okay, I'm going to go out to the movies and do something else or whatever. Then you go to sleep. You going to solve that problem in your sleep? Sure. No. <laughs> <laughs> or you're, and you didn't think about it, did you? No, you didn't think about it. You didn't think about it hard enough while you were awake for it to become important to your mind when you were asleep. And this goes back to that feeding your background mind thing. You really do have to work hard just think, not typing it in, just thinking about a problem during the day so that it becomes an agenda item for your background mind. That's how it works, right? It's when people are out there and they're like, oh my God, how am I going to find food, and this is happening there, but I know I saw elk over there, and they seem to be by the water sometimes or whatever. That's when you wake up as a caveman and say, let's go hunt for the animals by the water. <laughs> right? 
It's not a logical deduction. It, you know, it seems like that when your foreground mind is sort of analyzing it, but, but there's no logic for that necessarily. It's really a process of this very parallel kind of thinking. Um, so this is very important. So we have a problem in general because we write, we are, we're just being asked to write software that's more and more complex uh, as time goes by. And, and we know there's a seven plus or minus two sort of working uh, memory limit. Right? And, and as smart as any of us are, we all suffer from the same limit. Uh, but the problems that we're you know, called upon to solve are much bigger than that normally. So what do we do? If we can't fit the whole thing in our head at the same time, how can we work on a problem with more than nine components? Right. What I'm going to recommend is that you write all the bits down. Especially now, you've written a lot down about the problem. Right? You know what the problem is, you know a lot, a lot of facts about it, you know constraints about where it runs, you know what you don't know, you've asked yourself those questions, you wrote them down. I wish I knew blah. Um, you looked at competitive things and said, that works great over here, but that part of that competitive thing sucks. I hate that. I wish that wasn't there. Um, you gave this huge agenda to your background mind, and when you're trying to um, load it up, you need to survey it. And that's the point of writing it all down before. If you've written all the stuff down, including some sketch of how you want to solve the problem, you can go and just sort of jump around and look at that. And it's sort of like, you know, how many balls can you juggle? Well, you can only juggle so many. I, I can't juggle at all. But if we look at the seven plus or minus two thing, we're gonna say we can juggle seven to nine balls. But if you can imagine um, having an assistant who every now and then could take one of those out and put a different color in, then you could juggle balls of 20 different colors at the same time, as long as there were only nine in the air at any one point in time. And that's what you're doing. You're going to sort of look around at all these pieces and shift arbitrary shapes of seven into your head at different points in time. Maybe you'll draw pictures. Don't use the UML tool to do this. <laughs> there. It's not a methodology. So go over and over. But then, you must, again, step away from the computer. There's another really important part of doing this, which is to go and sit somewhere and have no input and close your eyes and not go to sleep. Close your eyes. Because we have this other thing. Right? Everybody knows what it is. It's really hard to describe. But does everybody have a concept of their, own, their mind's eye? Right? What you see when you close your eyes and you start thinking about something. It's this weird, I mean, it's not actually technically visual, although some people are really vibrantly visual. I know for me, it's, it's I don't know, I can't describe it, but it's not very realistic. Um, but you need to do that. That, that part is important for your brain. Uh, because at that point, you're switching out of sort of an input reception mode. If you're just looking at your lists, you're sort of in the mode of, I'm getting input. But when you're sitting and contemplating something and, and, and hashing it over in your head, uh, you don't have any other input, which means you're exercising the recall. I looked at those 20 points. Let's say it was just 20. I looked at those 20 points over and over and over again. And I jumped around with input between them. Now I close my eyes, and I'm trying to recall them and think about them a little bit more in my head. 
And you're going to find if you've done the last step going over and over, you will actually be able to sit on a hammock and pull all the different parts of a fairly large problem in and out of your head, admittedly maybe one at a time, and think, in a, think about them that way. That exercise is really, really important. I don't know why, it just is. Because it, it forces this recall thing that definitely makes those things agenda items for your background mind. So we'll call that mind's eye time. Now you're done. Cake is in the oven. You just have to wait. It's so good. Um, and, and, and one of the things I would say is at least wait overnight. No matter how, you know, you, you and your buddies talked about it and you were like, you just feel like such a hot shot today. I have got this thing. Um, you know, sleep on it at least one night. At least if it's an important decision. Um, <laughs> now, how many people woke up this morning with the answer to a hard problem? <laughs> you see, it's science. Science at work. Uh, no, it's really kind of an unfortunate thing. If you're not thinking about this, you think, what, what happened? I worked hard all day, right? Whew, I'm done working. Time to relax. Right? Unfortunately, if you, if you believe in what I'm saying today, um, you're actually doing something kind of important when you're sleeping. Uh, so occasionally, you really have to give your brain a chance to do that other part of the job. If you always deny it, I don't think you're going to um, have the best results. Unfortunately, sometimes overnight is not, a, not enough. Some big problems, especially finding really good abstractions or finding answers to things that satisfy a bunch of simultaneous constraints, take a long time. Uh, it just does. And I'm, I know everybody has to ship and everything else, and in that case, a lot of what I'm saying doesn't apply. And like I said before, I consider it a huge opportunity when I get an extended amount of time to think about a problem. Because I know it, I'll come up with a better answer. Uh, but one of the ways you can deal with this and not get stymied by, well, let me just think about that for three months. Because most managers um, are not incredibly receptive to that sentence. <laughs> uh, is to, to just work on more than one thing. right? Not inside one day. Okay? Try to work on one thing each day. But if over the course of time you have like three projects, right, it's quite possible to load one up and work on it for three days and find you're not um, finding answers to any of your question mark items or able to enumerate new possibilities. So you're kind of stuck a little bit. Just switch to another project and do that for a few days. Um, you have to amortize the loading up time. It can take between an hour and an entire day to load up something. So once you've done that, you try to get at least the rest of the day or three days or, or more on it. Uh, but don't get, don't get hung up about the stuck thing. Just switch. Right? Don't stay stuck. Switch. Or get more input. Talk about it more. You know, keep stimulating the pathway. Don't, don't stay stuck on it. But yeah, then eventually cake comes out of the oven. You wake up and you have a great idea. You think you know the answer to your problem or you have a good idea for a solution. Um, unfortunately, uh, sometimes you have an answer to the, not the problem you were working on. You were working on three projects and you loaded up with project C and you woke up with the answer to project A. Uh, that has to be okay, right? You just, just switch and take advantage of it. At least capture it. 
Right? If you wake up with an answer to some other thing that you can't work on that day, capture the results of this background process. They're really useful. Um, finally, you do have to take um, your great ideas and figure out if they're actually great by either analyzing them more, which is certainly important, but sometimes you have to write them and type them into your computer. Actually, we all have to do this. So you do eventually have to code. Um, it's fun. Stu has this great sense. He, he's seen some of my design sheets. And I don't know what you call it. It's this document of despair or something you call it. This was like, it seemed to be all like, oh, hey, we can't do this. This doesn't work like that. The question marks, blah, blah. This other thing it was just like, oh, it's all negative. But it's all challenges to the problem-solving process. It's not like, it's not despairing. It's positive. It's saying, I know what my challenges are, and therefore I can work on them. Uh, but you spit this thing out, now you have something, so you try to, you try to, uh, try to avoid a lot of typing. I know I do. Uh, because if I, if I think I've got an answer and the answer is small, that's one of the most telling attributes that it's probably good. Uh, and what I would hope from doing this whole process is that uh, you gain confidence in it after you've seen it work for you. So that you say, you know what, I have never done this before, but I really have thought about it, and, and this solution I came up with overnight feels awesome, and woo, let's go. Uh, it is important to look at what you did, and to run it, and see, and find out new things about the solution, and say, ah, you know what, I had this supposition, it's not correct, I thought it would have this characteristic, it doesn't, et cetera, et cetera. I am not advocating the waterfall model, you're going to try stuff and go back. That's fine. But don't lean on this, right? Um, Test-driven dentistry, I don't think I could come up with a better thing. <laughs> right, we can't really do that. The last thing is, um, you are going to be wrong. I'm frequently wrong. Um, that's part of the game. You're going to think of better ideas. I think that's one of the most exciting things. I think no matter what I've ever thought of, the fact that I know I'm going to think of something better, as much as it will suck a little bit because I know I delivered something that was not the best, uh, means that I'm still going. You know, it's still working. So you will think of better ideas. Also, the facts change. Right? They can change because of two reasons, right? One, you missed some of them early on, so they're new to you because you skipped them. What else do we have? Changing requirements, right? It's just, you know, we all know this. The facts will change. When the facts change, do not dig in. Do it over again and see if your answer is still valid in the context of the new requirements, the new facts. And if it isn't, change your mind and don't apologize. Sometimes you'll just make mistakes. Uh, errors in logic or, you know, miss, you, know you, just, you just get it wrong. Yeah. That's fine. If I can advocate anything, it's do not be afraid. Especially, do not be afraid of being wrong. So, in summary, uh, this was a rant. There's no summary. <laughs>